Hi, I'm Edward Cohen. Welcome to Tangent. Today we have Brian McLaren, Chairman and CEO at Zone Properties, providing cannabis real estate knowledge and wisdom since 2014. Hi, Brian. Where does this podcast find you? Yeah, loving it. Great to be back, Edward. And we're chiming in here from now. Very enjoyable Scottsdale, Arizona. Beautiful. Today we also have with us the hair of Voltaire, the man himself, Zach Ahrens. Thank you, Edward. It's always a pleasure to be here discussing French literature. That's what we do here. French literature and obscure history knowledge. Brian, we're talking US cannabis real estate. So let's set the stage. Cannabis market size is projected to grow from $60 billion this year to over $440 billion by 2030. That would be a compounded annual growth rate of 34%. I mean, in the U.S. alone, we have 37 U.S. states that have medical or recreational use. We even coined holiday inspired in this 420. What is going on in the cannabis real estate world? Brian, please enlighten us. Yeah, in short, lots and lots is going on very quickly. So we'll try to bring in as much updated information. Consider myself your cannabis real estate correspondent here. So Coming back into the to the audience here anytime we have fun updates. But yeah, in short, we have rapid advancement in the US at least of legalization on a state-by-state -state basis. And quickly for anyone in the audience that isn't up to speed on the legalizing and regulated cannabis industry in the US or or how that impacts real estate, what we're seeing is that the United States at a federal level is still figuring out how to legalize and regulate cannabis as a product and as a commerce industry. And so the people have spoken, the voters have spoken, and the state markets have not waited for that long and slow process to take place. So state by state, they've been legalizing. And over the past two decades, really starting with the West Coast, California, Arizona, and now spreading across all 50 states and, and additional you know, non-continental territories, we're seeing legalization. So overwhelming support of the voters are saying, let's make cannabis a legal product, hemp and THC marijuana-based cannabis products. And the really interesting thing from the real estate perspective is that each state legalizes and regulates the process very differently. So the types of licenses, whether it's a retail, a dispensary store, or a cultivation, a farm for cannabis and marijuana, you know, those are structured in each state differently. That creates different licensing processes for people who want to operate those businesses. And ultimately, every operation needs a piece of real estate to operate on. So yep. each state has different laws and every locality, you know, lot localities in the U.S. across the states, about 20,000 incorporated localities, they all have different laws and regulations. So it is a fascinating time in a strong and quick emerging industry for regulated cannabis. Uh, it's not slowing down anytime soon. And at a time where commercial real estate is very challenging from interest rates to transactional activity, cannabis is giving the commercial real estate industry an opportunity for some really, some really creative investment strategies and growth strategies. Very quickly, just to context. So last point here, if we're talking about actual value of real estate and cannabis, what the whole thing look like in the United States, we're probably somewhere around 80 billion of CapEx invested. That's likely conservative. And I know today we're going to talk about a lot about retail 
real estate in New York for cannabis. So in the US, we're probably looking at somewhere between 16 and 18 billion already constructed worth of, of cannabis retail doors. So the market is is growing. Very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, I want to touch on all those in detail, specifically, what are the opportunities for commercial real estate investors and operators in the, you know, in the rise of cannabis legalization. What can we learn from the different rollouts, particularly in New York? Last but not least also, why is my mom getting secondhand high every time she rides the subway? You know, those are the, the tough questions that we want to be asking today. So Brian, let's put some historic context here. I mean, you said it's been, it's starting to be legalized for 20 years now in the US, but cannabis was legal for most of human history until the 20th century. Between 1916 and 1931, 29 U.S. states banned the use of cannabis. During this time, we also had pro prohibition of alcohol. However, in after 1937, basically at the federal level, became illegal across the U.S. And to put it in perspective, where we are, even though people feel like we're in, you know, the seventh or eighth inning of cannabis because of so many, you know, positive headlines around it, we have only, correct me if I'm wrong, 11,000 cannabis retail dispensaries across the U.S. and we have 19,500 incorporated localities. So we have almost double number of localities than dispensaries in the country. Yeah. And, and if you look at coffee shops, pharmacies, liquor doors, you know, there's, there's about, I think 35,000 coffee shop doors in the, in the U S there's like 48,000 or so, you know, liquor doors. So you can see the comparison and the history is always fascinating. Cause of course you ignore the will of the people, you ignore history. And we could spend a whole podcast on why cannabis was made illegal and prohibition took place. But just like the alcohol industry and, you know, the bourbon barrel boys of, of a century ago, that did not slow down the, the industry and the will of the people and the consumers. And now the liquor industry is, I think, $220 billion industry annually. So cannabis is probably heading that direction as well. But given that it's only legal on certain state levels and it's not yet legal on the federal level, the one of the dirty secrets in real estate, so many of our assets rely so heavily on these federal agencies and federal programs, which work to effectively keep borrowing costs down. And we had some multifamily experts on last session and they were talking about the multifamily market is effectively at a standstill and that's because the government has pulled way back. So can you walk us through how somebody, if they wanted to be a landlord of a retail cannabis dispensary or on the logistics side, a cannabis warehouse, or even a, a cannabis growing facility, how would they go about transacting on that property and financing it? Give it, 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 it doesn't seem to me like one can obtain quote unquote traditional equity and, and credit financing for these assets. Yeah, great question, Zach. It's part of any emerging industry, right? You've got not just conflict of state and federal laws that create regulatory challenges. The big three when it comes to commercial real estate and cannabis, insurance, servicing the property, and legality or finance and legality. So how you put debt or leverage debt, which we all know in commercial real estate is a huge part of our jobs. Those three things, the finance, the insurance, and servicing, is, is what your question leads to as a challenge. So anyone listening in the audience that's interested in getting involved in the industry, if you have a property already, the biggest thing is to check on its qualifications. So because you have state by state regulatory structures and every locality has its own regulatory structure, 
you need to see if your property qualifies as what we call a green zone property. So our company zoned properties, very aptly named specifically for this reason, because the zoning regulations and codes very strictly govern where these sites can go. So the the good news, let me take a small uh, side tangent here, um, pick up a t- tool we need for this answer. But you know, it, I think a lot of us as commercial real estate professionals, we understand the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. And so new emerging industries that have faced regulatory challenges like cannabis for the past, you know, couple decades have been seen as as NIMBY industries. So let's put these, let's zone these things. Sure, you're going to legalize it, but let's make sure they go in the dark corners of any municipality, which maybe for agricultural, you put them in the ag district or a processing plant, you put it in an industrial district. But for many of the early years, the retail dispensaries were also being zoned in industrial areas, which makes no sense. Why would you want a public-facing consumer to go to an industrial area for retail use? So what's great about the past kind of two or so years is there's enough momentum in the industry that the zoning's starting to change to be more standard. So anyone interested in getting involved in this, if you own a property already, your first step is to see if it qualifies, if it's in the right zoning, and it's very complicated. Every code is different. Make sure if you're working with a broker, they actually understand cannabis. Just because your retail property is in a C2 and can do general retail doesn't mean it's going to qualify for cannabis. And then if you're an investor or a vendor or looking to get involved as not a direct property owner, you want to maybe do a sale lease back or buy a property. So these are things that we do at our company. We find properties that qualify. We are value add developer. So we go in get them approved, then we bring them to market. So if you're interested in that process, same answer. You've got to understand the local regulatory code. And then again, those big three, you've got to really understand what your lender capabilities are. Can they lend cannabis? There's more and more banks that are able to. Is your insurance provider actually going to honor a policy that's for a cannabis use? You've got to make sure there's not exclusions or void policies. And then if you have a property management group, if you're a big portfolio developer and have a, a service provider, making sure that they're able to collect rent and service a property with the use. So right. it's an exciting time for sure. There is a huge amount of opportunity, but it is extremely challenging. We're in very early innings and quick, quick, uh, sorry to data dump on everyone here, but last Please. point I'll, I'll add to set the frame on that for the opportunity as you pointed out, Edward, about 11,000 retail doors today, lots of ups and downs of cultivation and processing in the supply chain. So that area is a bit more turbulent. But if you think very reasonably that there would be a retail dispensary in every incorporated locality, you know we've got about 8,500 more stores coming. And if you do any kind of per capita comparison of consumer demand to alcohol or coffee, it suggests far more, 10 to 20,000 more doors before we stabilize. So the opportunity is huge if you understand. And a lot of us are really kind of watching and listening to the capital, especially equity on the sideline. That's a lot of that capital is waiting to see what the federal government does. And we can talk about that too. There's been some updates if that's helpful. Lots of good nuggets there. The common knowledge on the street has been that if you're operating cannabis business or if you're leasing to a cannabis business, you can't necessarily bank with major financial institutions. But 
small community banks and regional banks are are happily banking in some cases lending to the industry more and more. Right. Uh, I think that's right. certainly you know moving in the right direction at least with some tailwinds. I want to shift gears a little bit, but still within the connection between home prices and cannabis legalization. I mean correlation or causation, but after legalizing recreational marijuana, home prices grew at rates above the national average in 60% of the states. Those are Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Michigan, Maine, and Nevada. Now in the last couple of election cycles, we've had several states legalize uh, recreational cannabis. Uh, so those housing markets uh, to watch would be Illinois, Vermont, Arizona, where you're, re- where you're based, Montana, Jersey, and South Dakota. Still can't believe New Jersey ate New York's lunch in legalizing it before, but that's where we are. What Do you have anything to say about, you know, is there a connection there between home price appreciation and uh, legalization of cannabis? Yeah, and I think guys, I would even go further. So I actually did as as part of one of my graduate thesis studies, the connection between cannabis legalization. This was many years ago, actually 10 years ago, right when we got zoned property started, but uh, not just home prices, but what I was really interested in, and it was early, so not a lot of data 10 years ago, but community prosperity in general. So looking at home price valuations, commercial property valuations, crime rates, mm-hmm. uh, immigration rates, movement between cities of where people want to live and what policies they want to be in a state. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think the best resource for this that I've seen is the National Association of Realtors does their annual study. And again, back to the NIMBYism, in the early years, everyone thought cannabis legalization would bring decreases in prosperity. And what we've seen is the exact opposite. We've seen massive increases in economic development, inflows of commercial investment, job growth creation in many of the states, as you mentioned, home price and residential district increase in demand. Mm -hmm. And it's not rocket science. I mean, we know better and better data as we go. You know, most polls show 70% or greater of the country of the voters support legalization of of marijuana and cannabis. And, And the reason I'm saying marijuana and cannabis is, you know, sometimes it's hemp is governed differently. So not THC-based cannabis versus THC-based cannabis. But um, yeah, those, you know, the voters with their dollars. And I think a lot of people, you know, anecdotally, just obviously I'm in the industry, but a lot of people want to be in a state where if they light up a joint, they're still not at risk of going to jail. So they're going to move to places that support those policies in the community. (laughs) But yeah, it's moving in that direction. Yeah, if uh, you were to open cannabis your retail business or grow up, uh, you know, how how would one go about estimating demand? Uh, you know, is it a market saturated or is a market still early? Uh, I mean, in, in self-storage, for example, we have rules of thumb that obviously have to be adapted to uh, each market, but, you know, between five to seven square feet of storage per person in a three to five mile radius of a location, you know, that's how you estimate where demand is for self-storage. Is there such a, are there uh, any rules of thumb or how would you go about estimating uh, demand in the market? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, let me talk a little bit about the process and I'll keep some of that close to the chest. It's a bit of yes, a seat. Of course, give us some, you know, some teasers. Sorry, but yeah, I mean, property technology is the name of the game. So mm-hmm. how you assess a market from both a regulatory and demand perspective are equally important. When you're positioning a piece of real estate, that real estate is only as valuable as the demand of the users. Yep. So 
when we look at, we start at state market levels and we look at all sorts of data and reports related to consumer demand in adjacent industries. Um, we look at, there are some decent reports out there of per capita cannabis consumption, especially with the way in the United States, many states legalized medical programs first and then added adult use, then decent amount of year over year data showing how consumer demand from medical and then conversion to adult use looks. But I think also there, the, the great thing about cannabis is it's an emerging industry as a legalized and regulated or a re-regulated and re-legalized, but it's not brand new. So cannabis consumers have been around for many, many, many years. And there are various data sources, crime data, different development data that can help add to how you project what demand might be. And then again, the property technology. I mean, we built, I know last time I was on, we talked about one of the tools we built in-house at Zoned Properties called Rezone mm -hmm. that uses AI and machine learning with one of our tech partners to basically pull in a bunch of that data, create these green zone maps. And then you know, we can also add additional GIS layered data. Very cool. The demand. So it's, yeah, really important. And I know we're probably going to talk about New York here in a second, but a big part of regulatory restraints and demand restraints where those overlap is just critical in focusing on where you want to set up shop or where you want to invest dollars in cannabis real estate. Fascinating. New York City recreational cannabis rollout or botched rollout. From what I understand, there were good intentions when recreational cannabis was passed in the state of New York. They wanted to assign licenses to those who have been impacted in the past by the war, the quote unquote war on drugs. However, we are now, what is it? two years in after legalizing almost. And, you know, New York City's street smells, even though they were barely, rarely pleasant, have been replaced by cannabis smells. And I feel that has also fueled kind of this perception that New York City is uh, more out of control than what it is, you know, not getting into crime numbers here. And, and there are some, you know, wilder scenes on the streets uh, than there were maybe before the pandemic. But cannabis, uh, I feel has contributed to this perception that, you know, the, the city's not totally under control or that there's no process, uh, you know, law and order when it comes to, you know, just activities that are borderline illegal. I'm talking specifically about just how many illegal cannabis dispensaries have been opened across the city. I mean, and people just, you know, especially co consumers end up falling for either fake products or just, you know, not having the desired experience. What happened in New York City? Yeah, it's an interesting case study. You know, I, I say often on these discussions, one of the fascinating things about the cannabis industry around the world, but definitely in the U.S., because of the state-federal conflict and because the federal government hasn't stepped up and, and looked to adjust to the will of the voters and get this thing legalized and governed, you have every state as its own laboratory, its own case study. Every state is trying to figure out the right way to do it. And sure, there is corruption everywhere. Of course, there's always, you know, we're humans. There's and in anything, there's going to be corruption and fraud and bribery. And I'm sure that is the case in the New York market as well. But I'm a true believer of good intentions. So I think the people that structured New York, and I'll, I'll set a framework here for the audience in just a second, but the, the group that created the regulatory system in New York really thought it was 
built on learned experience of other states that had problems and they thought they got it right. And now we see many years later, they did not get it right. They're trying to fix it, but I think it has backfired. So here's the context for the audience. What New York did, and generally I think there's two schools of thought as cannabis has been legalized. There's big discussion around the term social equity in cannabis. I'm a sustainable development guy. Sustainability is people, profit, planet. Social equity is a huge part of how you create equitable and, and prosperous communities that are sustainable. So I'm very focused on this in the cannabis industry. And in cannabis, the term social equity refers to the history of cannabis prohibition and how cannabis being illegal has harmed certain communities. Many states have done is they have said, look, if you have a cannabis felony or misdemeanor, if you've been arrested for smoking a joint and it's impacted you, you know, let's consider you as a a qualified, you know, justice impacted individual, which is how New York refers to it. Flag for the audience, I am I'm not just a a professional and a, a constant learner, so definitely seek um, legal input for specific terms and regulations if you're pursuing the industry. But, you know, generally speaking, those social equity areas, what states have done is they've made priority in the industry for the licensing to those communities of individuals. And some states, every state defines things differently. In some states, social equity is related to race. In some states, social equity is related to your demographic region Mm -hmm. or your class. So in New York, it was really focused around justice impacted individuals that have been, that have suffered kind of cannabis crimes or committed cannabis crimes in the past when they were illegal. And so they prioritize licensing. These licenses can be very valuable. There are states that have limited licensing. So only a certain number of licenses can be issued. And you can imagine huge consumer demand for cannabis. And if you're one of only 50, 100, 500 people that can be in the business, that's a very valuable thing to possess, like a limited liquor license or casino license. But what happened in New York is they, I think, over-regulated that process Mm -hmm. and over-restricted it. We saw this in California as well. They're going through big reform around the tax regulations in California and cannabis. And so you end up with lawsuits. And what has happened is a large number of lawsuits have come into the New York program and basically frozen the conditional or social equity, the justice impacted licenses for retail. And that ripple effect has gone through every other class of license in New York. That's what I, at least we've observed and participated in with some projects. Up. Fascinating and you know frustrating at the same time. Uh, we sometimes can get out of our own way. Kind of exact opposite boomerang effect. The exact community that the state regulators built the program to help are now the ones that are once again suffering because they have spent time, money, effort, and committed to going down this business path and they're frozen. Literally this week, the regular adult use licenses, the application round opened in New York and those social equity licenses called card licenses, conditionally adult use retail dispensary licenses, it's suggested that they should reapply because the state does not know when the lawsuits will allow them to move forward with business. So you imagine you have a property under control, which is often required to get these licenses and you're paying rent. You've built out your site, 
you have investors and you can't move forward with your business because it's frozen in a lawsuit. Frustrating. I mean, emerging markets, there's always these high risks. You can't deny them, right? I mean, at the same time, this is, this is in crypto level of emerging market, you know, this has a uses beyond recreational that we have discovered and we are yet to discover even more now that there seems to be some momentum for declassifying it at the federal level, right? As a, what is it? Level, level one, level A level? What? Right. So that's the biggest, the biggest federal update is an unprecedented move by the, by the federal level. Cannabis is currently a schedule one, which is the most harmful drug under the Controlled Substance Act, you know, and next to what? I'm trying to think, I think heroin is schedule one. Even if there are drugs that like we all know as just humans, you know, quote the whole stay away from drugs that are even schedule two. Um, right, right. So, you know, schedule one typically, you know, and again, this yeah. is my area of expertise, but no medical benefits, extremely addictive, like things that I think we're seeing proof of real research, medical research is not the case for cannabis. So uh, health services at the federal level has made a recommendation finally to reschedule the schedule three. And so, right. And schedule one is, is the harshest or, or the least, uh, you know, incentive, the least allowed to be researched or, or anything, right? Right. No research. So it's basically legal. Schedule three is essentially medical benefits with some non-chemical addictive properties. So like Tylenol with codeine is a schedule three. Schedule one, I mean, you just read this list and it's like, one of these is not like the other. Schedule one drugs include heroin, LSD, ecstasy, peyote, and cannabis. Right. It's like one of these is not like the other. Schedule right. two includes, which is supposed to be lower, includes fentanyl, fentanyl, which is oxycontin. Thousands of people. <laughs> That's like we we have headlines about the opioid crisis, and that's Schedule Two, below right. or or less harsh than uh, right. cannabis. And there's um, decent research. It is definitely correlation. If not, we'll find out causation that legalizing cannabis and cannabis use drastically decreases opioid risk. So all things point to positive for cannabis, but anytime an industry emerges and, you know, you pointed this out earlier, Edward, all the illegal unlicensed shops that are in New York, there's gray areas in the laws as things get regulated. So unlicensed is probably the best way to define those, those shops. I mean, it's, we're, we're going to see this middle area where if the federal government continues its reform you're going to see a gray area of unlicensed, unregulated operators that are hiding in the guise of legality. And consumers, how do we know? You walk up to a coffee shop, how do you know if it's got a business license or not? Imagine walking into a coffee shop and not knowing if the coffee is coffee. Right. Safe coffee or has ever been tested or... So, I I mean, I think we're in this in-between period of the emergence. So, Mm -hmm. federal government Health Services has recommended rescheduling to Schedule 3. The DEA, which is the actual administration that does the rescheduling, now takes that under advisement. And the next big update in the U.S. is going to be hearing from the from the DEA about that rescheduling. If it gets rescheduled, and this is the biggest impact for business and commercial real estate, Schedule 3 does not include what we refer to as 280E tax risk. 
in cannabis as a federally illegal industry, it's subject to this tax code called 280E. It was like built around al- alcohol, mobster prohibition, the Al Capone you know, tax that basically says, if you do illegal activity, you still have to report your taxes to the IRS and we're going to tax it at, it's like an insane rate, 51%. Right. Cannabis businesses have bit are subject, plant touching businesses are subject to that code. And if if cannabis is rescheduled to schedule three, that is no longer the case. So that was a huge impact. It's also a risk for non-plant touching companies. You know, in theory, you're participating in an industry that's still federally illegal. So that would be a major move for the industry, as well as some banking reform that is going through Congress right now. We'll see if we see some called the Safe, Safer Banking Act now, but. Uh, How's a good name to it? Yeah, I mean, these things need to be defined, you know, back to New York, big part of that, you know, if you want to consider that state rollout as botched, you know, or a massive learning experience. Massive uh, learning, that's a better framing. You, you have to enforce unregulated areas. If you're going to regulate, a key to that is if you want people to adopt the process and the cost and the the resource required to become regulated, you need to make sure that you're giving the carrot, here's this great industry where you can succeed by getting regulated, but then you use the stick to those mm-hmm. that are unwilling to do that. So all of these unregulated, unlicensed, you know, in theory, straight illegal cannabis shops in New York, so far there's been very little stick and there's not really a carrot because they're succeeding, consumers are consuming, so it's really challenging for those groups that are trying to do it the right way under the new regulations happened in California. And if you don't fix that problem, you will see a reversion. You will see many people that try to do it the right way that say, well, why am I held to a higher standard than these thousands of competitors that aren't paying taxes, that aren't paying license fees, that aren't being you know, audited or inspected? I'm very hopeful that New York is starting to correct some of these things with new leadership and new adult use license rounds that just opened this week on October 3rd, you know, that will help to bring in and compete with the unregulated groups, you know, get consumers in a place where this product is safe to consume and you're following the laws and the regulations. Awesome. I mean, in terms of the potential for bringing in new revenues for for cities, for states, the downtowns of cities now are reeling. A lot of them are suffering from empty offices, which means property values going down, which means tax base evaporating. Also coastal states that are seeing out migration or at least the cities that people are moving to the suburbs of the state. You know, that just means cities need to get even more creative and and really find ways to generate the revenues that we need to to maintain our public areas and our services. Cannabis could be one of those, right? I mean, personally, I'd rather see more cannabis legalized and more uh, gambling licenses rolled out in New York City. In terms of comparing revenues, we probably shouldn't compare the revenues because I would guess gambling is going to bring a lot more, a lot quicker, at least, than cannabis. In terms of the secondary effects that will generate on the city and the society itself now, that's a deeper discussion, but probably never a good sign if more of society is spending more of their income in gambling overall. I wanted to st- talk about Amsterdam a bit just because this presents like different points of view here because I think there's very valid points of view. Amsterdam, which has been like the cannabis capital of the world for a few decades now, you know, it, it almost 
It's very much part of the identity of the city. Now, the surprise of many is that when you go there, most of the locals actually don't really fancy it or actually support of it at all, and nor that type of tourism that it brings. What would you say to that? Yeah, and even further, I mean, by all reports I have seen over the past six months, you know, in 2023 here, fall of 2023, Amsterdam is closing most of its coffee shops, which are the mm-hmm. cannabis they refer to in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. yeah, I spent some time there. You know, when, when we built, started Zone Properties, I went out to Amsterdam. I visited lots of the, the cannabis organizations. I visited a region called Alsmeer, which is a big greenhouse area, you know, one of the world's largest flower and growing and auctioning districts, you know, famous for tu- the history of tulips and major cannabis area. And it's one of the things you even heard back then, you know, as much as a decade ago, is that it, it was directly tied to tourism. If you talk to a local, sure, there's the average person who uses cannabis and you know maybe will smoke a joint instead of drinking a beer, but it's commonplace. It's not a you know it's not an attraction. It's a normal part of life. It's no big deal. So I'm not surprised to see this as the direction it went. The other thing you would hear from a lot of the local businesses is that it was never an issue internally. I think increases and changes of tourism has caused the challenge today. The big issues were crime related to international transport of the product. Inside of the Netherlands and inside of Amsterdam, crime around cannabis was not a big deal. But getting large amounts of product into the country from non-legalized countries. Schengen, European. Exactly. So an interesting comparison to the United States and even provinces across Canada before they legalized federally. So in the U.S., there's no interstate transport because there's no federal reform. And this is one of the things everyone's waiting for is if there's legalization at the federal level, will we see interstate commerce? But currently, the law only allows for product to be grown, processed, distributed, and sold within each state market. And so what that does is it causes consumers that are in states, you know, Missouri is a great example. You know, Missouri and Tennessee, two of the states, I think each of them have eight bordering states or maybe nine even states that are adjacent to those legalized states that have legalized consumers cross border, they acquire product and then they go home. And so you're seeing lots of decrease of crime within states that have legalized cannabis, but similar to the Netherlands and Amsterdam, you do see sometimes crime increase on the border trying to come into those state markets from states that have not. And again, what we define crime as, right? It's it's almost hilarious. You've got in 37 to be 38 states with Kentucky, you've got you know cannabis that is no longer a crime, and you've got really only five states left that have not decriminalized, that you can still get arrested as a criminal penalty for cannabis possession and consumption. Even in other states that haven't fully legalized, many have decriminalized. So it's a civil citation. You get like mm-hmm. a park. So yeah, Amsterdam's fascinating. It's, you know, I haven't looked into the data closely enough, but I would imagine it's the result of locals saying no more. You know, we yeah. just... I think demographics wise as well, very, very different than most of the US and also the layout of the city, you know, a lot tighter in the US. We have a lot of sprawl. <laughs> But, um, yeah, not definitely not apples to apples, but just, you know, fascinating to see because they were the early movers. And it seems like what you're saying is also there's an early mover advantage here in terms of states uh, right. uh, to, you know, to move forward with, uh, you know, adoption of different uses. 
Right. Brian McLaren, sustainable developer, chairman and CEO at Zone Properties. Thank you so much for coming to Tangent today. Super interesting. Great to be back and I'll be back again anytime we need a cannabis update for the audience. Thank you very much and uh, smoke responsibly, consume responsibly. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate you listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.